Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. This is the Mythosophia series as we continue here. My guest in studio is Dr. Will Lynn. It's great to have you back in studio and sharing another adventure into mythology, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. And I got to tell you, it has been an incredible experience for me, an education. I think I'm getting close to that PhD, but I, I still got a few more classes to take with you in oh, order to even get close. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's wonderful to be back. It's been too long. It's It has indeed, and we actually have a very special guest I'm going to let you introduce to our listeners, uh, but I want to remind our listeners that we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com, the radio show's page, as well as podcasting on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and uh, many more to come and looking for a greater expansion as well. So share with us uh, uh, where we're going, because it, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Joseph Campbell permeates just about everything we do on this program. Well, he's certainly one of the big uh, mentors and uh, leaders of, you know, pioneers of where we've, where we've come. And, uh, I'd and like no, to... folks, he's not our guest. I wish he was. <laughs> well, uh, probably, you know, one of the next best things. We're here with Dr. Evans Lansing Smith. And before I bury it in the rest of his incredible uh, biography, let me first say that he is the leader of a tour in the footsteps of Joseph Campbell through the forest of Brosiliand. And uh, did I say that correct? Absolutely perfect. And he's also the editor of Joseph Campbell's uh, posthumous work, um, uh, Romance of the Grail, which is based on his master's thesis. And so uh, we'll talk in this program a little bit about Lance's experiences with uh, Joseph Campbell and his experiences working on the great mythologist's uh, unpublished works. But let me go ahead and introduce uh, Dr. Smith. Evans has degrees from Williams College, Antioch International, and Claremont Graduate, Graduate School. He is the author of 10 books and numerous articles on comparative literature and mythology and has taught at colleges in Switzerland, Maryland, Texas, and California, and at the C.G. Jung Institute in Kusnacht. In the late 1970s, he traveled with Joseph Campbell on study tours of northern France, Egypt, and Kenya, with a focus on the Arthurian romances of the Middle Ages and the, mythology of the mythologies of the ancient world. He's written 11 books and edited two others. The recent volumes that he's edited are posthumous works of Campbell, as mentioned, The Romance of the Grail, but also the most recent addition to the collected works of Campbell, which is uh, the, the letters of, sorry, the correspondences of Campbell, which include letters between uh, him and Thomas Mann and a whole incredible list of, of leading figures and thinkers of the last uh, 20, of the 20th century. To name just a couple other books that he's written, The Hero's Journey in Literature, The Myth of the Descent to the Underworld in Postmodern Literature, uh, and Sacred Mysteries, Myths About Couples and Quest. His areas of emphasis include myth and literature from antiqu antiquity to postmodernism, Arthurian romances, and the Hermetic tradition. He currently teaches myth in the underworld, alchemy and hermeticism, Arthurian romances in the grail, folklore and fairy tales, theoret theoretical approaches to mythological studies, cultural mythologies, and native mythologies of the Americas, at Pacifica Graduate Institute, where he chairs the mythological studies in depth, in, in, with an emphasis in depth psych. <laughs> Let me try that again. Where he chairs the PhD program in mythological studies with an emphasis in depth psychology. Uh, so welcome, Lance. Thanks, Will. <laughs> you know, the Holy Grail, or the Grail, mm -hmm. is where you and I started. That's so true. That's so true with Elizabeth Stewart. Elizabeth Stewart. Yeah. Arts and Antiques. On Easter. Back in 2012. I think it was in 2012 when I first met you. That sounds right. I was, it took us two years to get Mythosophia rolling. And mm -hmm. the, the Grail, 
um, was introduced to me more so through Dan Brown's book, mm. uh, The Da Vinci Code, because when he started investigating and talking about the, the Last Supper picture, then mm-hmm. they talk about how it appears there, or maybe it's Mary Magdalene, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. Um, mm. Why is the Grail such an important feature for you to focus on in, in reference to this uh, whole story regarding mythology? Well, for me, it's all a matter of the stories that surround the quests and the different uh, approaches to the quest. I- essentially, the, the Grail represents a, a state of achieved wholeness and fulfillment, mm-hmm. and uh, most characteristically in the romances of the Middle Ages, the, uh, it's associated with couples, in fact, so, and the redemption of the wasteland. So it has something to do with the dynamics of our relationships in their full range, physical, spiritual, emotional, and so forth. And the grail ultimately is uh, the symbol of that, that hope for an achieved fulfillment uh, in the future. And it's the stories themselves, really, that, that uh, drew me to the, to the grail, um, rather than uh, the grail being a kind of esoteric symbol. Uh, for example, in the uh, Dan Brown book, in that context, the grail is, is essentially associated with the chalice of the Last Supper that collected uh, then the blood of Jesus on the cross. But in the traditions that um, Joseph Campbell introduced me to, it's a rather different story. Uh, in the French romances of Chrétien, Which are the older grail is essentially a, a, a dish Mm-hmm. studded with gemstones with certain magical qualities. And in uh, Wolf of Feneschenbach, the German uh, medieval romancer, and the greatest of all the grail romances, the grail uh, is actually a stone, a gemstone that's fallen from heaven during the war between uh, the angels mm. and, and uh, St. Michael. So it's the, there's a wide range of really interesting stories, and I'm a literature person. It's great, great literature. Well, now, when Will and I have talked about uh, uh, just all of the various aspects of mythology, and we've talked about some specific things like the grail, mm-hmm. um, there, there is this saying that kind of goes along with mythology that, you know, the question is, well, yeah, but is that, it, was it really true? Did it really happen? Was that really oh, a The true grail thing? is such a good example of that question. Yeah. It's like, okay. It's, and, of course, usually the answer to that question when that question is asked is, well, some of it's true, and some of it is made up, uh, is part of the story. Yeah. And it's hard to separate those two when we're talking about the grail, isn't it? Well, it is. And, you know, f- as a mythologist and a comparative literature person, I'm interested in this symbolic imagery, which is not to be interpreted on a literal level. Mm-hmm. It has rather something to do with fundamental uh, aspects of our lives and our quests in life and our relationship and so forth. And in in that context, that's where the meaning comes from. But right alongside that, in the last 20 years or so, all of the Arthurian studies have shifted to historical research in an effort to try to identify certain locations or certain dynasties and who was Arthur and so forth. And that's produced a lot of fascinating results. But myth is symbolic. It's a system of metaphors that, that appeal to us on a very, very deep psychological, emotional level, and that's where the energy is. What's interesting is that there are so many other 
shall we say, platforms that will utilize that genre, when I say genre, medieval, because that's sort of the time frame Mm -hmm. in which people think of the grail. Yeah. And one in particular that is is extremely prominent in our in our social media, our media today, is this incredible, and I always find these authors just fascinating, uh, The Game of Thrones, yeah, which, of yeah. course, originally was a book. Right. Now, there is no grail, mm-hmm. as There's it were. There's certainly a, a goal that everybody's trying to get to that, that one, one thing throne. that they believe will make them exactly. complete. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that kind of uh, uh, sort of the theme that a lot of, shall we say, fiction writers, if you will, uh, and even some, maybe historians when they're searching, yeah. uh, are looking for? Is that 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 uh, that incredible uh, uh, thing or place? Because yeah. they're still looking for the Garden of Eden too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, will give us. The answers that we have been so desperately searching for in regards to our humanity and yeah. where we've been, where we're going, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, the situation in the Middle Ages, historically, politically, socially, was extremely complicated with radical divisions within the different parts of what weren't even nations then. Mm. In France and Germany, for example, they weren't, they weren't nations they were split. There were feudal conflicts within families and between kings and princes and so forth. And it led to the kind of political crisis that we're in now of extreme divisiveness. Mm. And the symbol for that in the Grail romances was the symbol of the wasteland uh, associated with the particular wound that had been inflicted on the Grail king. So that the quest for the Grail has to do also with the redemption of the wasteland and the healing of the wounds uh, associated with the Grail King. Mm. And we don't need to look far now to see where the wasteland is. <laughs> it's the, what we're doing to the planet, mm-hmm. and it's going to yep. get worse. Yep. Neither do we need to look far to find out where the political divisions are, and they then impact our psychological and spiritual quests. So that the Grail brings together so many different dimensions of meaning and therefore remains kind of eternally relevant uh, for yeah. filmmakers, Game of Thrones, media, they, so forth. Yeah. They say that we, uh, if, we, if we would just but study history and learn from it, we, would, we, could, we could not have to repeat it. Yes. But the reality is, if we look at human history, we don't learn from history. No, so how will mythology m- bridge that gap? Well, if history can't do it, the true stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can provide uh, stories like the one that Fulfur von Eschenbach provided in his Parsifal, where the, at the end, one of the great symbols in the completion of the Grail quest is a union between the European Christianity and uh, m- uh, the uh, m- uh, Middle East and the Islamic world. Uh, a knight from the Middle East named Fearfiz uh, finds out that he's the brother, half-brother, of the European Grail King. And the symbol of the reconciliation of European Christianity and the uh, Islamic traditions of the Middle East uh, is the marriage of the two. And marriage becomes the great symbol of reconciliation of internal and external divisions that enables the redemption of the wasteland to occur. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, wouldn't it be lovely to think 
um, as Hemingway says at the end of Farewell to Arms, isn't it lovely to think so? Wouldn't it be lovely to think that it's through love and relationship and marriage that we can redeem the wasteland that we're in and establish some kind of some kind of political order that will take us into a positive future. Mm. So the stories provide uh, some hope in that regard in terms of solutions to problems that were very strong during Wolfram's time in the 13th century and are you know, even more important uh, now. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful to be back in these conversations. It's been a while since you're Arthurian class at Pacifica mm-hmm. Graduate Institute. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I so would love to go on this tour to actually engage this material for, how long is the tour? It's just a week. A week. Sunday to Sunday. Serious deep dive. Uh, uh, yeah. And are there, are there a couple places you want to highlight that kind of raise this? Because what's so interesting about it is you're going to real physical places and you're, you know, exploring an imagination where even though we look at it as metaphor, uh, I think many of the people that were engaging it over the, over the centuries weren't always looking at it as metaphor. So you'll be going to places uh, that were important to people that didn't necessarily only see it that way. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the, where you're going and how, how this literal tour relates to a metaphorical journey? Well, when I was 26 years old, at the end of a year of a creative writing program, I got a flyer about a trip to northern France. And I was not ready to go back home to Baltimore to go to law school or be an insurance salesman or go into business. But I was interested in literature and the arts. So I found myself on a bus with Joseph Campbell on this absolutely marvelous trip, which is essentially a hero journey cycle, of stopping first in Rouen, where uh, Joan of Arc was martyred, Going on to Bayeux, where the famous tapestry of the Normandy invade of the uh, Norman invasion mm-hmm. was, and then on to uh, Mont Saint Michel, mm. the great uh, cathedral on top of the rock, and we stayed in the hotel where Eisenhower had his headquarters during the during the Normandy invasion, and then we and we went on this excursion into the forest of Brocéliande, which is essentially a central Brittany. Uh, with the woods, and these are the woods of Merlin, the Lady of the Lake, Vivian, Morgan Le Fay, and that's where we Campbell would tell the stories, essentially. A real enchanted on, forest. On, on the spot, and it, it was a profoundly transforming, uh, a deep experience for me uh, in, in a million different ways. We also went out to uh, the Atlantic coast to Finisterre and Karnak, which is where the old Neolithic... Uh, monuments are that go back to, you know, 6,000 B.C. in some mm-hmm. cases with the standing stones and the, the cairns and the megaliths and so forth. Uh, and they underlie the mythology of that whole region because in Brittany, you know, being on the coast where the culture came up from the, from the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. there are an incredible number of uh, Neolithic sites that are even before Stonehenge. So you get a sense of, of the cultural depths of the traditions that the Grail romances emerged from. And uh, at the end of that week, we made our way back towards Paris, uh, stopping off to see Chartres Cathedral. Uh, and I sat with Campbell on that bus, and he remembered being 26 years old, going to Chartres Cathedral oh, wow. and identifying every single story in the stained glass and the stone. As a 26-year-old. Yeah, he was, you know, it was uncanny synchronicity mm-hmm. for me. And he got to be so friendly with the sexton 
who had his little bed uh, looking out on the Black Virgin right above the crypt. The sexton took him up to ring the bells one day. Hmm. And this involved going up this incredibly tall steeple, getting on a, a wooden swing, and uh, rocking, the, uh, rocking the bell back and forth and still, until wow. it started ringing. So he told that story as we came in to Chart. And he said, I feel very chez moi, E.C., which means I feel very at home here. Mm. And uh, that was the end of a pretty remarkable week. Uh, finishing off all in, in one week. Yeah, finishing off in Paris to see the you know the uh, unicorn tapestries. Mm. So I've been thinking for years about redoing that trip and stopping at some of the same places, and uh, I just kept putting it off because every time I thought about doing it, there was another catastrophe in Paris. Mm. You know, Charlie Hebdo and well, good thing there wasn't one this and, year. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, so I put it off for years, and now finally I'm just going to do it. Whatever the, whatever happens. Whatever next. happens, you're going to yeah. just roll with it. Yes, sir. Well, we're going to roll along here as well. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come okay. back with more uh, with uh, Evan Smith, Evan Lansing Smith, and uh, Will, Will, almost said Will Smith. Uh, <laughs> he'll, he'll be another guest on the program. That's a good idea. <laughs> Will Lynn is uh, our uh, co-host here on the program. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, the Mytha Sophia series exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Myth of Sophia here on Tell Me Your Story, uh, New Paradigms for a New World. We are exploring the depths of myth and wisdom here with Will Lynn, along with our special guest, uh, Evan Lansing-Smith. And uh, again, it's great to have you here on the program to talk about this era, which I, I don't know about your personal experiences, Evans, but the Middle Ages in particular, because of the fact that we're talking about the Holy Grail, which seems to be where that resides in mm -hmm. that time period seems to be of such a fascination for people mm -hmm. whether it's uh, uh researching the actual stories of the kings and queens and the castles and the knights and all of this kind of stuff or whether you're looking at a program which the only reason that i truly enjoy it is because of its medieval if you will uh, or Middle Ages theme mm -hmm. is the Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I mean, I probably would never pick up the uh, the books, would never have, had I not seen this series. It's just it's so similar mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. in its in its uh, uh, portrayals of the kings and the mm -hmm. queens and the royalty and the hierarchy, if you will. Mm -hmm. you, you know, know something funny. Uh, last night we did an interview at a thing we do called the Myth Salon in, in Santa Monica with three resident medieval scholars from the mm -hmm. Getty. And uh, we asked them about Game of Thrones. And they said, A, it's all we can talk about. B, it's completely unrepresentative of the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the fact is that they're using swords mm -hmm. and they have, they're wearing that, that metal armor and running, riding horses and mm -hmm. having all of these incredible battles over territory and the castles. Dragons. And dragons and dragons. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, it, and it's, it, it's like I think that there's something 
mystical. I think I know. I want to ask uh, Lance to go into Bronn. Who's Bronn to Arthurian legend? Because we know who he is in Game of Thrones, but I don't think any of the fans know who that is. Well, I'm not sure I can answer the question, frankly, because there are roots in the uh, Welsh mythologies uh, that first were written down in the Middle Ages, but probably much older. And they have to do with the image of a decapitated king whose head is put at the base of the Tower of London and is associated with the sort of once and future king hope, you know, for the redemption of the wasteland. And in the French art uh, romances, he plays kind of a role as an ancestral sort of figure associated with the lineage of the Grail Kings and so forth. But the question you're asking is kind of characteristic of the problem. The French romance uh, is well over a thousand pages and there are so many variations and uh, uh, digressions and stories that it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong task to even read them all, much less understand and assimilate them in a, in a meaningful way. And that's why I, you know, Campbell was so important to me, because he had read them all in the French and in the German, and he was able to assimilate them and then communicate them directly uh, to, uh, to us, you know, in a way that implicitly conveyed the mystery, the depth, uh, of the stories, and along the way, avoiding some of the in- incredible complications, which I gather Game of Thrones, which I have not watched, but I gather it goes off in a, in a lot of different uh, storylines and plots that are all related to each other, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of the basic structure of those romances in France. There was called the interlace technique, where you'd have maybe maybe six knights on quest, and they'd all have different complicated adventures, but they would cross paths along the way. And that Mm -hmm. was the interlace. And it gave you some sense of the complexity of the stories in relationship to each other. You know, we got to interview, or I got to interview uh, Brian Cogman, who's one of the three main writers and producers for Game of Thrones. And he, you know, talked about how he saw all of the characters as on their own hero's journeys, intertwining hero's journeys. That's Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that's absolutely true. And and to update, you know, we, we talk about uh, Arthurian and the Grail legends in the, the middle, medieval period, uh, but also Richards brought up the uh, uh, Da Vinci Code, and of course we have Indiana Jones and the, uh, and the Grail quest that he went on in the Last Crusade. And I just wanted to mention, you know, I had a chance to talk with uh, Robert Walter, who has told me that uh, while George Lucas associated the elder Indiana Jones with Joseph Campbell... Uh, uh, um, Steven Spielberg associated the younger Indy uh, with Joseph Campbell. And of course, we found out later that Dan Brown associated Joseph Campbell, or his figure, um, Robert Langdon, with Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell actually uh, did go on real Grail quests. This is the one that Campbell, ha- uh, sorry, that Lance has uh, participated in and is reviving. So it's a chance to go on uh, the original inspiration for these two great recent Grail quests. And I wanted to flip it around and ask, you know, Lance if he could talk a little bit about some of the more popular Grail quests before these that, that are modern, that are from the 20th century. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, my career has been devoted essentially to modernist literature, and that means literature between 1895 
and the Second World War. And these are the great modernist writers, Thomas Mann, Proust, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, uh, and so forth. And uh, what you find is uh, slipped into these, you know, encyclopedic novels like Mon's Magic Mountain or Proust's The Remembrance of Things Past. You find these episodes that are taken directly from the romances, mm. and they are updated into a contemporary situation, which for them was a period of considerable crisis revolving around the First uh, World War. A new and wasteland. The, and the 20s, and that was the wasteland of T.S. Eliot. Mm. When Eliot called that poem The Wasteland, he knew what he was talking about. Mm. Because this is the time of the trenches, you know, and the terrific catastrophe of the loss of youth in England. And the sacrifices of humanity uh, to do it. Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So The Wasteland implies a need for a quest for a new mythology that can offer some hope for the redemption. And that's uh, that's Eliot's great theme. Mm. And as complex as the poem is, you get it. Well, now, when you're saying we're looking for a, a new quest, how about the modern-day superheroes that we're seeing portrayed in the movies? They are uh, always going on Grail Quest. Yeah, always. Thanos' yeah. Grail Quest. It's, but yeah. I have to say there was one movie, that, and I don't, you probably, I don't know if you've seen it or not, uh, but it was one of those Marvel, I think it was either DC or Marvel. Mm -hmm. It was with Superman and Batman, mm -hmm. and they were battling. Yeah. And I watched the movie. And about, I, I'm going to say about 15 minutes to the end of the movie, they suddenly, they're just both so exhausted <laughs> that they start talking. Right. <laughs> and they start talking about how this all started. Yeah. And yeah. it turns out it all started over a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I get it that Hollywood would never have made the movie if they'd resolved and had their discussion yeah. in the first 15 minutes of the movie. The movie would have been a half-hour miniseries or a half-hour mm -hmm. program on TV. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's almost as if, again, going back to if, it, you know, if we refuse to learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. If we don't start talking to one another, that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But let's talk about the, 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 the whole comic strip yeah. heroes right. and heroines yeah. who, as you say, uh, Will, are on their own hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but they're also there. Uh, people are just gravitating to them like you wouldn't believe because right. they don't feel as though there are any in real life. Right, right. Well, as Will does far better than I do, there's been an explosion of these mythological themes in the graphic arts, comic books and media and video games and so forth. And often the people who write the scripts for those are extremely well-informed. They, they know these things and can often incorporate them in very, very clever ways. And uh, they have some sense of the depth of significance of the symbols, which they're now you know, conveying in a medium that's very, very accessible to a large audience. So that the comic book, graphic novels, uh, you know, renaissance has been extraordinary. I grew up with comic books too, but it, it was some surprise for me to learn that there's a whole series called Camelot uh, 2000, I think it is. Oh. And it's uh, beautiful. I, I bought the, the box set, so to speak, with all of the episodes in it. And it essentially brings the whole Grail Quest redemption battles between the different members of the court into a kind of sci-fi 
uh, sort of arrangement mm-hmm. where you know Merlin comes back and and the, Arthur reassembles the Round Table, and it's a kind of intergalactic uh, setting. Yeah, and it's the um, spectacular color and artistic uh, talent, you know, in the production of these books. Mm-hmm which uh, is now f- much more widely recognized as an art than it, won- it was when I was a kid, you know. But I love those colors. I love the stories. I love the heroes. And uh, Well, that's the reason I like Warner Brothers cartoons, which I grew up on. I loved yeah. the colors. I loved mm-hmm. how vibrant mm-hmm. everything was, which is the reason why I use... Uh, that's why I, I use Windows rather than Apple products yeah. because their colors on, on the, the Apple products are all washed out. They, they yeah. don't have that vibrant. They don't jump right. out at me. Right, right. But I want to ask you about um, – because as you were talking about the, the vibrancy of colors, I'm thinking of a, a series of books that I read as a, as a young man probably in my teens. Um, uh, and uh, Frank Herbert and yeah. the Dune series, the Dune right. trilogies. Now, the one thing that has always enthralled me, and this is part of even part of the Game of Thrones story, as well as many of these other sci-fi trilogies and so forth, is the intricacy, the depth mm-hmm. at which they write about the political structure, the yeah. religious mm-hmm. structure, right. the hierarchical, the royalty, the the royalty and the peasant structure. Yeah, all of those things. It's just amazing. Yeah. How they weave all of that in there, and right. I'm wondering if if the spice wasn't maybe the holy grail of the Dune yeah. trilogy, at least the elixir, or at least the elixir, yeah. Well, I you know I haven't read Dune, but I, I devoured science fiction when I was a teenager, like you, mm-hmm. you know, in public school, and yeah. taking the stuff out of the library. I just <laughs> loved all that. Uh, but I I'm aware that a lot of the energy and academically and in pop culture is moved in the direction of things like Dune mm-hmm. and a, 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 a recognition of the literary genius of a person like Frank Herbert and the visionary and the detail and the yeah. intricate stories and so forth. But guess what? I, I, I have time to read papers and dissertations and, <laughs> and have no time left to read anything that I would like to read. Well, so. you should get audible. I should. I should. <laughs> I should. Well, you know, I, I think that this sets up such an interesting conversation. Uh, going back to what, going back to the wasteland, there's another wasteland that I think that we were dealing with uh, at that time, and that is, uh, comic books were seen as, as children for children. Yeah, uh, and fairy tales, fairy tales are for children, and you see a variety of really interesting people making this criticizing this point, Tolkien Tolkien being one of them, saying that uh, fairy tales have been relegated to the nursery, and anything that you relegate to the nursery gets beat up and destroyed, and, and not, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that's been so interesting over the last 80 years is what I'm going to say, I'm going to call resurrection of the imagination. I think that the enlighten, enlightenment uh, decided every miracle was, was uh, for fools, and that, you know, literally Thomas Jefferson cut all the miracles out of the Bible. And so I think that what's so interesting and so exciting now wow. is that our culture actually, you know, even when I was a kid, mm-hmm. this stuff was too imaginative. This stuff was for kids. Yeah. And now it's not. Yeah. Now there's an adult imagination. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's really exciting to be reviving that adult imagination. Although there mm-hmm. is the criticism of those who are into it. They're nerds. They go to Comic-Con and they yeah, dress up. Yeah, but they're up. taking over. <laughs> yeah, okay. And again, I'm not saying I'm not being yeah. critical. Right. I'm not passing judgment because the reality is, ironically, the reality is that the real world is just so 
insane mm-hmm. with with the way that it's it's unfolding uh, in politics, in education, even in religions. Uh, that um, instead of taking a few drugs, their drug of choice is the fantasy world. Yeah, which yeah. to me, I have no problem with that. Right, because. Right. At least there you get to create and you get yes. to realize that we do create our own realities. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm going to, before this trip to France, I'm going to Vienna for a week where the Jungian Society is going to meet. And I've gotten very interested in an artist named Gustav Klimt and the art of the fin de siècle end of the century in Vienna. And there was very much a sense that art provided that special sacred private space of the imagination that was sufficiently you know sealed off from the chaos of dad coming home pissed and drunk at the end of the (laughs) night or whatever's the chaos of another sarah huckabee you know report about trump Mm -hmm. Uh, we need those special places where we can engage in our in our deep imagination in a way that's protected from from those Incredible stresses that we're all under. And I will tell you that, yes, I have seen many of the uh, movies about uh, these great superheroes that, that have originally were in comic books. But I have to tell you that the greatest, from my perspective as a sound man, the greatest genre to experience these things in the creative, imaginative mind mm-hmm. is radio theater. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up listening mm-hmm. to E.G. Marshall mm-hmm. and the CBS uh, uh, um, uh, Mystery Theater. Wow. When we would drive from Phoenix to Florence or yeah. back when we were going home late at night, turn yeah. on CBS, turn on the CBS uh, network cha- uh, uh, station. Yeah. And E.G. Marshall. Yeah. And the CBS Mystery Theater would come on and they would yeah. do the whole thing. And it was yeah. just, it was, and then of course I was privileged in my 20s and 30s to produce radio theater. My very first one was by the late Norman Corwin yeah. called The Moat Farm Murder. Uh-huh. I actually uh-huh. found, I think it was a 1938 recording of it. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But it's like there, and people like Stan Freeberg, who <sighs> accentuated that as well. Well, you're part of the, what we call in literary studies, part of the great uh, or, oral tradition, yeah. the oral transmission of the materials through storytelling. And this is what Campbell came out of the Irish tradition and an absolutely mesmerizing storyteller, you know, with the voice and the cadences and the mm-hmm. rhythms and the humor. Yeah. And I remember listening to some of those radio things, and you get completely drawn into that oh, world. Yeah. And there's something very special about not having the comic book or not having the film to give you the images. Mm-hmm. You've got to create the images by what you're hearing. I read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code via Audible. Mm-hmm. I did not read it from the book. Yeah. Now, it wasn't produced. It was just a, 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 re, a narrator reading the story, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And my mind is playing the movie out. When the movie came out, the main character, whose name, for some reason, I now cannot remember. Tom Hanks. Well, no, not oh, Tom right. Hanks. Uh, the <laughs> character he played. Robert Langdon. Right. Mm-hmm. He looked exactly like the character in oh, my wow. mind. Wow. And many of the scenes looked just exactly like those images in my mind. Wow, that's a tribute to the film. Which sure also is. contributes to something that we've talked about on the Tell Me Your Story series of programs about how everything is happening all at once as far as time is concerned, that there is no linear time. Man's mind has created that. And so I'm thinking, well, I was watching the movie that's already been made. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. just 
mm-hmm. hasn't materialized in our time-based clock-controlled world. Yeah, no, you know, and, and yeah. that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, but it's that to me is just so fascinating. Indeed, yeah. In terms of of your uh, study and research of mythology in your particular realms. Um, what obviously we're here started out talking about the Holy Grail, mm-hmm. but is is that what really intrigues you most, or is there is there a particular theme? Yeah. I don't want to say story, but theme yeah. that that really grabs yeah. you and has just has kept you enthralled. Uh, well, it's been my entire career has been focused on the mythology of the descent to the underworld. Uh, going back to the earliest sources, really, in, in Homer and Virgil and Dante. I was just going to ask you, like Dante's story, Inferno? Like the Inferno. Okay. Okay. Those, uh, those stories of, uh, and they're called the Nekia uh, in the Greek, N-E-K, which has to do with death, as in necropolis or, or necrosis mm-hmm. or something like that. And that is probably the most important myth that links all of these traditions from the ancient period up through the Middle Ages in what I call the Arthurian Nekia, where the heroes are going on a journey that ends up to be a journey to the land of the dead, like the story of Lancelot Mm -hmm. rescuing Guinevere. Mm -hmm. And so that they're taking this story of the descent to and return from the underworld, and they're updating it into relation to what's going on in the contemporary environment. And this is what happens uh, really all through the literature of the uh, European and American tradition. So go back and read Huck Finn, you know, yeah. which I did for, uh-huh. for my Hero Journey book. And what do you find, you know, are these motifs that come from the heroic journey across the river to the other world mm. with the death of his father, Pap, and, and all of the images that come there. So he's working with what the Union work calls an archetypal story structure. And of all of the archetypal stories, the mythologies of the descent to and the return from the underworld are, I think, the ones that have been most important for me. What about, uh, this came to mind as you were sharing that in terms of the underworld, we in the West, we tend to put people's bodies in the ground. Mm -hmm. But, for example, the Vikings and other traditions they burn the bodies on a pyre. Mm-hmm, they never mm-hmm. go into the ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I have to wonder, is there some kind of a, a, a connection uh, to burying someone in the ground and mm-hmm. that underworld? Well, yes, uh, there, there would be uh, uh, traditions in, in ancient Greece. The underworld it was associated with the granaries where the grain was stored in silos that were underground. And that uh, contributed to the mythologies of the descent to the underworld uh, in the so-called Eleusinian mysteries. And the symbolism of the grain and the grape and death and rebirth and so forth that we know from the, uh, the Eucharist or the Last Supper, mm-hmm. they're, all, they're all a part of that basically biblically-oriented nature of, of European culture. Mm-hmm. Right? So we are the grain. So we, we uh-huh. uh, you know... Because of the Bible and earth to earth, dust to dust, and ashes to ashes, we do have this sense of the underworld as some place down there below the surface of the earth. But as you're saying, what about the Persian traditions of putting the bodies in the top of a tower and uh, letting the vultures come and devour the flesh? And think about that. In yeah. the Parsis, or yeah. what about uh, you know the Little Big Man movie? 
where you know the the tradition in the Plains Indians was it's very similar to put the body up uh, on a kind of a, tref, a, a scaffolding, mm-hmm. the and Tibetans then then the let let the birds take care of the rest. Yeah. Uh, so those mythologies impact the way we tend to the burial of the dead. And those who handle the body above ground uh, and, and do it in this fashion, are they sort of acknowledging that the body is not the important part of human existence? I think so, yeah. And it, uh, even, even something like cre- uh, cremation rituals and which are so important in the Buddhist world, mm-hmm. that in- incredible movie about Chugam Trungpa and the, bear, and the funeral pyre at the end of the movie called Crazy Wisdom, I think. Mm-hmm. There's this definite sense of the, the transformation of fire and the this, this smoke and the soul and the spirit go up yeah. even though the body you know, stays down. And of course, uh, Hercules is is burned in a pyre like that as well, and yeah. uh, Einstein mm-hmm. and Tupac were both burned on the day they died, like like Hercules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I actually, I have this crazy theory, and this is not even theory. This is wild speculation, but I'm going to throw it out there that <laughs> that there is an image where you can have both burial and pyre in one, and that is uh, the uh, that is smelting. So if you are when you're making metal, what you do is you dig a big pit. And then you put all the ore in there, and then you make a big pyre on top of it. And so uh, I think that uh, the rituals around metal work, uh, like the rituals around grain, uh, may have also informed some of these. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there are some classic books on that Hmm. by a mythologist named Eliada called The Forge and the Crucible. Mm-hmm. And it's about all the uh, mythologies associated with the smelt, the extraction of the ores and the smelting mm-hmm. process to create the metals. And apparently there were what he called smith songs hmm. that were sort of uh, within the community of, of the smiths. And those songs recorded the mythologies, essentially, that had to do with the transformation of the metals. And you can, of course, see the parallel of extracting the metal from from the raw from, stuff, from just the like womb, extracting the From the, the womb of Mother Earth yes. in those mythologies. The ores are the embryos in the womb of Mother Earth, wow. mm-hmm. and they need to be delivered by C-section. And if you ask Freud, <laughs> uh, the, dwarf, the dwarves are the penises going into Mother Earth to go the, get them. The, 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 dwarves, the dwarves are all part of that. So, yeah. you know, the mythology yeah. of mining, and mm-hmm. the mines obviously are associated with the underworld. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular, uh, from your perspective, a particular story, a myth, a myth uh, uh, that... Um, you think would really help people in large numbers to better understand who they are and their role and their connectedness. We talk here on this program, and of course we even talked about this on one of the Myth of Sophia programs, and we got into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And I talk about um, our spiritual connection. And the best representation in Star Trek, the next generation, was the Borg. Mm-hmm. Now, set aside the malefic aspects of the Borg, they were all individuals, mm. all different, but they were all connected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they communicated. Now, what, what, what I, I was listening to an audio file of, of one of the conversations that they were having about it. And it turns out that it, there was no central command they well, were all not connect- until that one movie right not, not <laughs> until that one movie right but at the, uh, but prior to that they all communicated collectively 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a democracy. Hive mind. Hive mind, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've even uh, used this analogy in regards to the human body and in terms of learning from nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what political system does, do our cells, the cells of our body function under? Uh-huh. And first of all, you have to throw out democracy because if yeah. they function <laughs> under democracy, the body wouldn't exist because everybody would want, everyone would want their own individual uh, 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 right yeah. to choose. Right, 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 right. Interdependentism right. Is, the, is the one I came up with. But, yeah. but is there a particular story that, that you can think of that might help uh, m- more people to understand that it, it's all of us or none. We've got to work together to solve the problems, the ch- to face the challenges that we are facing right now in the 21st century, or forget about it. Well, <laughs> I actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of our students um, uh, wants to write a story based on the hero journey, but the hero journey is a collective. It's a group of people oh. who go on the journey rather than just the one person. Mm-hmm. Not, un, I would say, probably not totally unlike uh, The Hobbit or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's Bilbo and the gang. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're all in it together and they're all working together in that, that, that uh, collective effort to do things mm. in that particular way. But um, it, more traditionally, I, I, I would really say that somebody's got to do Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parsifal. As a film, mm-hmm. here, here, and uh, there are a million different reasons for that, but but one of them is this incredible interconnectivity motif, where when there's a joust that Parsifal or Gawain goes to, all of Europe is involved, and they're all related by family, hmm. and they've got to sort out all of this complicated situation uh, together, and uh, more often than not, it's. Uh, it's marriage that mm. ends up sort of not only being personally redemptive, but also collectively, so that the different parts of the social order are are brought together in harmonious relationship with each other. And that's psychological symbolism, and too. Psychological, right? for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's almost along the lines of, uh, uh, as we started out the program talking, of course, uh, about Game of Thrones, uh, Khaleesi and Jon Snow. I mean, you're we talking about, see. well, I'm just saying <laughs> that there you have two people who are actually, they, yeah. turns out, they're related to each other. They're family. Shh. They're family. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Spoilers here. <clears throat> well, yeah. that's just too bad. You better catch, catch up. up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, the reality is, though, whether you know the genealogy or not of uh, and relationship to of another person, we are connected because we're all human beings. And if you go back far enough... We all have the same parents, and that's conjecture on my part. Yeah. Allegedly, we all have the same original parents. Well, that's the myth. Yeah. That's the story that's, we, yeah. you know, and, and I, I actually suggest, you know, this, this uh, Robert Walter calls it the ensemble hero, and, yeah. and I think uh-huh. I, I would suggest that uh, that's actually probably one of the greatest achievements of these new Marvel movies is uh-huh. that they are, the Avengers are an, a group, an ensemble hero. Mm-hmm. And you'll see over and again, I, I think probably my favorite example was uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy first film where he's holding this super powerful stone and it's too much for him to channel on his own and then they all link hands together and mm-hmm. it's only through there's this beautiful image where they're all only able to channel the energy and save the day because they've all linked hands and so you've got this strong image of all these individual heroes linking hands uh, and then you see the same thing the metaphor repeats like a fractal or on another octave when you see at the same time 
all of the fighter pilots have also gotten on a team together and they've mm-hmm. made this big net of a of a of a grid of a group yeah. mm-hmm. and i think that this is actually uh, a motif beyond just a myth and uh, that should be shown every summer and every blockbuster right now with what we're going through we mm-hmm. need a lot of these ensemble hero mm-hmm. stories yeah. yeah well you know the soldiers i mean uh, yeah. those those people in war together whether it be in the trenches of France or, you know, the swamps of Baghdad, the collective relationships between the soldiers uh, is is a heroic endeavor, mm-hmm. and that's a collective endeavor as well. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to serve in Vietnam, so my experience of that collective hero was athletics. Mm. I was a lacrosse mm. player, and boy, you have to be a team player and an individual. And you have this incredible experience of the magic that happens when a team really works together in a beautiful way. You know, the Mm -hmm. military in this country in particular is, uh, I admire the the infrastructure if you will that and then and again that connectedness yeah. that bonding aspect mm-hmm. whether you go into combat or not right um y- y- you're you're you you're all brothers yes and of course today mm-hmm. is brothers and sisters okay? right right and uh, uh that you have their six right and all of these yeah. different different aspects and that's why um though i i did not serve yeah. In any way, shape, or form, in the military, and and uh, and so forth, I had relatives who did, and um, uh, sometimes I have to wonder if maybe uh, taking a lesson from Israel mm-hmm. and saying, "Okay, guess what? Yeah, when you turn eighteen or twenty-one or whatever it is, you got to learn to rely on each other. Two years, yeah, yeah. minimum two years. You yeah. got to spend time, and and exactly right, mm-hmm. because." When we wait for disasters to happen, like we had the mudslides in in Montecito, mm-hmm. and we had the Thomas fire, and this fire, and that fire, and the other yeah. fire, yeah. that's those are the events that bond the communities. And boy, it's like, do we really have to well, do that? Can can we find right. other less destructive ways? I wish of bonding? we could. <laughs> I wish we could, but it doesn't seem that we have been able to do that over the centuries. Yeah, you know, one of our main mentors is a man named James Hillman, and he wrote a book called The Terrible Love of War. Mm-hmm. And basically, he is exploring the th- kind of things that you're talking about, the incredible intensity of the bonding and the relationships and the sacrifice mm-hmm. as being something unique to the experience of war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, conversely, we've even eroded what we have naturally as we, as uh, across the board in, in business, we are shifting towards gig economies, at-will contracts. And so the loyalty... Uh, and your relationship with your company uh, is is er- eroding in this country, and I yeah. think that we that undermines uh, the patterns that we want to have with our families, the patterns we want to have with our country, and so I think you know it's the the capitalism of America in some ways has uh, created market forces that have pushed us away from that attitude. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I would agree. Uh, and what I find fascinating is is in our capitalist system in business, if you will. Uh, everybody's so concerned about the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And yet, every time you turn around, you hear about people being let go, and for this reason, that reason, the other reason. And I I, I have to use our our government at present as a prime example. How many people at the highest (laughs) echelons of our government have been replaced in the last two, almost two and a half years? Right, right. Dozens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, Yeah. And if you've been in business and you've had to hire and let people go and bring new people in and train them, how much 
I know there's a number, there's a statistic yeah. that tells us how much money is wasted yeah. having yeah. to go through that process every time <laughs> somebody new is brought in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding me? If yeah. you're so concerned about the bottom line, why can't you make your business, your infrastructure more cohesive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And often myth can help in ways that uh, yeah. haven't been fully explored. We had a wonderful woman who taught at Pacifica named Carol Pearson. Mm -hmm. And she was very interested in these dynamics in the corporate world and how these various mythic archetypal energies would relate to the way that the business would function. Yeah. And so she became a kind of a consultant for, for corporate endeavors and so forth. And uh, we can do things in a different way. Yeah. And mm -hmm. indeed we have to if we're gonna survive. I mean, I'm an anomaly. I have uh, one of my first early radio jobs lasted 15 years. Yeah. My present job is going on more than 12. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and yes, I've had other jobs in between that lasted quite a number of years too. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, you know, how how is this beneficial to the corporate bottom line, to the shareholders? You know, the yeah. fun the good Every news is I think that the good news is is that we're getting such big data now. And that we all knew that we all know that holistic thinking is better. We all know that yeah. uh, uh, thinking of the group and the and the sum mm -hmm. of the of the all the parts is is more powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's been hard to get businesses to actually live that way. But yeah. now with the data that we're getting with the big data, it's becoming hard to resist structuring around yeah. those recognitions that that coherent yeah. wholes actually do operate better, yeah. that the long term vision actually is more valuable. And so I'm very hopeful that the big data will push us to be more collective in the way that we operate. Yeah. Yeah. You know that uh, um, when I was growing up and watching uh, the stock market in particular and finance and the numbers going up and down and so forth and how <laughs> the economists would come out. And quite honestly, no matter what the numbers were, whether they were up, down or, or neutral, they had nothing but bad things to say. <laughs> OK, it's like, OK, well, what numbers would make you happy? But one of the things that struck me was and I took a look at when the stock market and I think it was what, back in the 20s that uh -huh. the stock market was founded. Mm -hmm. Where has it gone in the 80 plus, 90 plus years that it's been around? Up. Mm -hmm. If you look at a graph from the beginning to the present day, it's gone up. Mm -hmm. Now, has it had its dips? Sure it has. Mm -hmm. But it's always gone up. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about the long-term mm -hmm. goals, the long-term view, um, instead of the short-term, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, Campbell was often asked, what is the myth for the for our time, mm -hmm. and he would say he'd go back to the image of the Earth as seen from the moon, mm -hmm. and the recognition oh. that we are one people yeah. on one planet, yeah. and to break down the political boundaries and the psychological boundaries that separate us, yeah. and form a global, I know that's a very contested word now, <laughs> but some kind of global harmony that recognizes our shared humanity. Well, and you know, it's funny, no matter what people want to say about that, as, as, as far as being disparaging about the global economy right. or the global mm -hmm. world, the fact is, it is. Right. You can say whatever you want. The reality is, it is. Yeah. And the Baha'is, uh, they have known that since the mid-late 1800s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the quotes from their founder, Baha'u'llah, spoke of that, that it's one world with no borders because mm -hmm. 
it is. When you see it again, you see that picture from space. Yeah. Where are the lines? Where are the borders? Yeah. You know, you can separate your uh, neck bone from your hip bone, but uh, you bleed to death. You bleed to death. Exactly. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Very, very interesting. Hey, Richard, before we wrap up, if I may, just you know, one more time, remind of this incredible tour that Lance has going. Remind us of the dates. It's the very first week in September. And like that's first to the eighth or so. So this is your chance. Northern France. Full oh. immersions and full immersion in northern France into the Grail legends, into Joseph Campbell, and into the updated work of Evans Lansing Smith. And while we're on it, I also wanted to mention, you know, if if, if any listeners are interested in mythology and are interested in the relationship of mythology to storytelling, there are really two places that I want to point you to. And one of them is uh, the Pacific uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute's PhD program and master's and PhD program in mythological studies, uh, which Lance here chairs. And the other is if you're a bit younger and or if you're more focused uh, specifically on the arts and on film and media, um, we at Studio School and the Joseph Campbell Writers Room are dedicated to building an education program that puts story first and makes mythology a foundation. So I hope you'll check out those organizations. I hope you'll take a close, long look at that tour. Uh, and I would love to see you there. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to take a shot and just uh, apply just because of all of the stuff I've learned over the years. <laughs> now, there's got to be a way to incorporate that and convert that into some credits <laughs> that will lead me towards my PhD. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? It yeah. would yeah. be. Yeah. They used to do that. You right. used to be able to go to a college yeah. and you'd say, well, I, I, I worked in this particular field for this long and right. I learned these skills and the da-da-da-da-da. And they would give you credit yeah. towards what you knew. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah no. We'll do a little bit of that at our school, actually. You yeah. know, because we, we have it's incredible at Studio School where we have these professionals. They're professionals coming in. They're they have agents. They're on TV. They're in movies. They're on you know dance shows. They're spectacular, and uh, and we gotta we gotta work with them to make sure that we can get students that good to come. Absolutely. And so we do sometimes give them some credit for that. Well, I'll I'll be talking to the uh, hierarchy <laughs> there about that. This has been fantastic. I got to tell you, you know, as as always, we're all over the board, mm-hmm. but it all ties together. And I want to thank you so much, uh, Lance, for joining us here. Well, on the thank program. you. It's this has been fabulous. Thanks yeah. so much. I Great really appreciate with it. You again. And thanks to Will. Yeah. Thanks, I'm Richard Lance. Dugan. This has been Mythosophia, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan. And I thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, love to lull.